Ну да, все. So this afternoon we return to the practice of Tonglen. Really, it's very much the heart of the Bodhisattva ideal, the heart of Bodhicitta in terms of a method, but not only a method for developing Bodhicitta, but also an expression of Bodhicitta. But if we looked historically at the most renowned and highest impact expression of Donglen, my mind just is drawn to Jesus on the cross. I mean, this occurs many times in Buddhism, but this is the most famous case. What was he doing there? He was, according to Christian understanding, he's taking upon himself, himself being utterly pure, coming from a place of total purity, one could even say primordial purity, and coming from that place, out of his extraordinary love and compassion for all beings, taking on the sins, the evils, the mental afflictions, of everyone, and with a wish, may it ripen upon me. I mean, isn't that absolutely standard Christianity? So there it is. Um, and what I find so interesting about this is that on the one hand, in terms of mainstream Christianity, and that's for both Protestant and, and Roman Catholic traditions and Orthodox traditions, uh, the vision there, as we see in crucifixes all over the world, is of kind of an embodiment of uh, taking on great suffering. Father, why, why have you for, uh, for, forsaken me? You know? uh, and then for many Christians, I think this is intensely moving I just recently read a, a brief biography of St. Francis of Assisi, and he was just profoundly moved and transformed by that image of Christ's uh, intense suffering, but coming taken on voluntarily, uh, out, out of compassion, and, and, so, and so entering into that, really, I read one account saying he, perhaps more than almost any other saint, really tried to step in the footsteps, follow the footsteps, of Jesus himself, emulating his way of life, living as a beggar, of poverty, of just utterly ongoing flow of loving kindness for all creatures, including animals. Um, so really, for him, taking up the cross and following in Jesus' footsteps was what it really meant to be a follower of Jesus, that you actually seek to step in his, follow his tracks. So much so that towards the end of his life, uh, he had went into, went into one very, very intensive phase of practice. I think he fasted for 40 days, something like that. I don't know all the details. But then when he came out, he, the, the stigmata were apparent on his feet and on his hands. The wounds, very much like those wounds of driving spikes into your hands and feet. And um, so, and he may have been the first case of that. I'm not a historian of Christianity, but there have been a number of cases of, of the stigmata appearing in the great saints. And he may have been the first one. But now, and, and so as I said, here is an incredible man of, of tremendous inspiration to Christians and many non-Christians alike, including myself. Um, this is an embodiment. And also joyous. That was the thing I, I, when I read this biography. It was very short. But he went from a very comfortable life, his father being a kind of a bourgeois businessman, quite successful, and he was, he was the bon vivant. He was the, the playboy, the, the guy who loves life and party, party, party. He was the life of the party and then had this abrupt transition where he saw a leper, and his first response was cringing, because it's just scary. Lepers, I mean, it's, it's contagious, and it's so awful. And he saw it, and he cringed. And then something clicked within him. It was really kind of like just this radical revolution took place with him. He saw what had taken place, and he went over, and he gave the leper all his possessions that he had with him, and then 
embraced him or kissed him on the hand. But that wasn't just a gesture. That was a, an absolute turning point in his life, such that then he, he, uh, he joined a group of beggars and gave, gave them off, gave him their, his, his nice clothes, put on de beggars, beggars' clothes, and spent the rest of his life in total poverty and joyful. From then on, they just said he just embodied joy wherever he went. When he took the lowest of the low, then joyful, cheerful, through thick and thin, through poverty and more poverty and so forth, and, uh, and then died at a relatively early age. It's a very interesting story, very inspiring, of course. But again, what I was about to get to is something that stands outside of the mainstream. And that a mainstream, again, we, all, we all know, there's we've, how many crucifixes have we seen, and there's the suffering Jesus taking upon himself the miseries of the world, the sins of the world. But there is actually another vision also, which I take seriously, uh, and that's the Gnostic vision. So thanks to the superb scholarship of scholars like Ellen, Ellen? Ellen Pagels, P-A-G-E-L-S, done some wonderful work. I've read a number of her books. She's an outstanding scholar of Gnosticism, but she's tr translated some of the original texts. And the vision that comes up in these Gnostic texts is, yes, Jesus died on the cross. He did it ent entirely voluntarily. But as he's on the cross, he's laughing. He's laughing. He's blissful. He's joyful. Same nails, same body, but a very different depiction, right? And so then one can ask, well, which one, which one actually happened? And if one brings some Buddhist understanding to this, if one wants to approach this seriously, uh, which I do, to my mind, it's part of human history. Um, so which one's the right, the right one? Because they're very different visions, right? And the answer that I would say as a, as a Buddhist is both. That is, reality rights, rises up to meet you relative to the quality of awareness, the type of awareness you bring to it. So if you view that from a mundane perspective, if you view that from the perspective of your ordinary psyche, your ordinary persona as a suffering samsaric individual, then what, what, what choice do you have to see? This man is, you know, he's, he's nailed, he's being executed in a grotesquely, you know, tortuous kind of fashion. So you'll see it in the way you have to see it. He's suffering, but he's doing this voluntarily out of compassion. That's, of course, what you'll see. But if you're viewing that same reality from the perspective of the kingdom within, from Buddha nature, then you would see it as Here's a person who embodies primordial consciousness, and he's blissful. But his immutable bliss is holding the suffering. So it's not like the immutable bliss gives him a general anesthesia, like I'm not experiencing it all, ha, ha, ha. But rather, on the surface, there is a suffering. The, 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 the nerve endings of the body with nails driven through it are sending the message, this is bad, this hurts, this is injury, getting all the messages. But instead of identifying with that, my body, my nails, my, my feelings, and so forth, resting in the open expanse of pristine awareness, where the suffering is rising like little waves on the surface of the ocean, and where you are is in the depths of the ocean, in immutable bliss, holding it all. So they may be both true from different perspectives. Now that's speculation. But it's my speculation. And it's grounded in Buddhist insight. This, is, this, is, this would be a Buddhist view if one wants to take that seriously. And His Holiness Dalai Lama certainly takes Jesus seriously. He's called him an awakened being. So I take that seriously. Coming back to our practice, so that was a little bit of a tangent, but it's very much part of our world culture. Christianity is not just for Europe. 
It's global. There are many Christians here in Thailand and so forth. Um, and to try to understand without simply subsuming or taking kind of like one-upmanship. Oh, we, we know better, we know better. I think actually it's in the Christian tradition. There are, all, are multiple perspectives. But so let's go, come back to the practice we're about to go into. We're going back to, right back to Tonglen. And I'll address the text after the meditation. Where I'd like to go, though, is to one of the aphorisms that I'll read shortly after the meditation, and that is practice the Tonglen starting from yourself. Starting from yourself. Well, this actually is very familiar for, for a person who's familiar with the basic teachings on loving kindness, compassion, and so forth. And that is loving kindness in particular. Start with yourself. Develop loving kindness for yourself and then extend to your loved ones. Quite easy. And then to your friends. Still quite easy. Then to neutral people. Well, okay, you can do that. And then finally to the people that, not that we despise, because you can't love and despise somebody at the same time, but people with whom there's been tension, friction, conflict, where there's been, there has been animosity, and especially where there's animosity coming from them and even embracing them as well. So that's the classic sequence, but now with, couched within the method of Donglen. So that's where we'll go in the next meditation, of actually taking upon oneself, it sounds ironic at, the first, at first glance, taking upon oneself willingly, deliberately, gladly, taking upon oneself one's own suffering, and then giving to oneself, sending one's joy, one's virtue, one's happiness to oneself. You can say, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make any sense. You're only one person. So how can you, how can you do that? I mean, I mean, give myself my cell phone, thanks, thanks a million, I'll give it right back. Oh, thank you, I'll give it back. And it doesn't make much sense. So it's, if it's lateral, Alan Wallace gives Alan Wallace his cell phone. I'm, I'm accumulating all kinds of merit. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow, thank you, thank you. Uh, okay, we just trivialized something, made it just silly. If it's working horizontally, it doesn't make any sense. I think it doesn't make any sense. But of course, Buddhism, the Buddha Dhamma, and many other contemplative traditions don't look at us horizontally. They don't simply equate us, the self, with one dimension. You're not just a sentient being. You're not just, if you're a man, you're not just a man. That doesn't define you totally all the way down to your core. On your relative core, you're down to the substrate consciousness. That has no gender, right? And it doesn't even have a species. You're not intrinsically at your core. Substrate consciousness isn't even human, right? So it has a whole bandwidth in which it expresses itself up and down. But it doesn't even start there because still, at the substrate consciousness, you're really, you come to the ground state of your samsara. That's, that's the, it's called the kunji, the alaya, the total foundation, total ground. It's the same word, right? Alaya. The total ground of your samsara, right? of all the bandwidth of samsara you've ever experienced in all your lifetimes, from the deepest hell realms to the highest deva realms, everything in between. This is always like if you were a yo-yo, you're going yo-yoing out into all these different realms, but you always come back to the palm. You always come back to the palm. Sooner or later, you're going to die from any of these samsaric incarnations. And the palm you always come back to is your substrate consciousness, right? Because that's not differentiated. That's a stem consciousness, stem cell consciousness that is not yet differentiated into one kind of species or let alone gender and all the, all the other details. But it's your ground of samsara. That's your individual ground, your samsara, right? But then we don't even stop there. Okay, but that's not your ultimate ground. You haven't hit the ultimate ground yet. Ultimate ground, of course, is this non-duality of the primordial consciousness and the absolute space of phenomena. Primordial non-duality. 
the ultimate ground, the very ground of being, which is who you are, who you have always been. That's the perspective of being awake. To rest there is to be awake, to be Buddha. So when we take on, I want to, again, kind of front load the meditation so I can speak a lot less during meditation itself, and that it will be intelligible, that it will be meaningful, and not just a technique, right? But here's my interpretation. You'll see the line. You'll see what I'm interpreting, so then you'll know exactly that's what he's talking about, but that's what it says, and that's what Alan, how Alan interprets it. Um, when it says, take upon yourself your own suffering, start with yourself, and then extend outwards, what I would suggest is the self that takes on your suffering is symbolized there as the radiant orb of light at your heart. It's your Buddha nature. That's who you are. When you take all, the, all your clothing, all the configurations, all the manifestations that come and go, even beyond the coming and going of samsara, even beyond that, the union of stillness and motion. Ever heard that before? The stillness, the ultimate stillness that transcends time beyond the three times, past, present, future, the fourth time, that's your ultimate stillness. And the comings and goings, that's samsara. Arising and passing, living and dying, moving, moving, moving. That's samsara. The fusion of the two, simultaneous awareness of the two. The, it's like a hall of mirrors, like it's the same theme. The union of stillness and motion, which we hear on the first day of learning about settling the mind in its natural state. Lo and behold, that's a perspective of the ultimate perspective of a Buddha. The union of nirvana and samsara, the stillness of nirvana, the movement of samsara. Simultaneous and non-dual. Right? So microcosm leading to macrocosm and macrocosm and microcosm. And so when we take upon ourselves in this Donglen practice, I take upon myself all my suffering of the past, present, and all the suffering of the future that I'll ever experience, I take that upon myself gladly. Come on in. I, out of compassion for myself, I take it all in. I, I, I embrace it. All that darkness of my mental afflictions and obscurations and all the awful things that come out in terms of behavior, inspired by or aroused by mental afflictions, I take it all in. Take it all in. But where? Not into your head. Not into your psyche. Not into your substrate consciousness. Into the depth. Into what, for the Buddhist, is the kingdom of heaven within. Your Buddha nature. You take it in there, and then I give unto you, that is, your, in this soliloquy, your discussion with yourself. Now, in the tong, the sending forth, you're sending forth all your virtue, all your joy, all goodness. From what, from what place? From the source that's infinite, inexhaustible. And so you're kind of offering to yourself the blessings of your own Buddha nature, the Dhammakaya. So, it is an I-thou relationship between your deepest self and your phenomenal self, as being a man, a woman, Mexican, American, German, what have you. It's a dialogue. This is manifest throughout the religions of the world, most often dualistically. So one views this utter purity, the divine, the transcendent, you know, the utterly good, the samantabhadra, which means totally or always good, ever good. As a personification. So for Christians, it's really primarily the personification as, as Jesus, as a human being. There is personified all that is good, all that is compassionate, all that is wise. 
for traditional Buddhists, Theravada Buddhists and others, personified as another human being, a Buddha, personification of perfection, of awakening, of limitless compassion, wisdom, and power as well. For others, like for the Muslims, it's not personified as a person, but as a transcendent person, Allah, right, God. For Hindus as well, Hinduism is so multifaceted that there, is, there are non-dualistic, like Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, which has a lot of similarities with Dzogchen, just fundamental unity, primordial unity of your own, your own self, and then Brahman, infinite. But there's also Dvaita, Dvaita Vedanta, which is dualistic, saying not so fast there. I think it's probably more realistic, better to view the divine as someone, something else, dualistic. And so in theistic traditions around the world, very frequently, including in Buddhism, it happens, Tara, praying to Tara, praying to Avalokiteshvara, praying to whoever it may be, Padmasambhava, as someone else, someone who embodies that perfection to which one aspires, but still identifying with oneself as one who is not that, one who would like to be that one day, but they're already, fait accompli, one who's already achieved, already embodied, that perfection, and then praying to such a person, offering prayers of supplication, asking for blessings, and so forth, in an I-thou relationship with a personification of the divine. So it often happens in institutionalized religion that the heads of the religion, for whom, in which power, status, and uh, money often creep in, they do tend to creep in, Buddhism is no exception, uh, they get very nervous when their followers start going into the Advaita, the non-dual mode, where they're really taking very seriously the notion that the divine really is within. And in fact, there is no divine out there at all, independently of the divine within. Right? Get very nervous there, because they say, oh, we might get disempowered here. They might not make so many offerings to us if they start thinking the divine is really within. They might, might just want to make offerings to themselves. Right? And so they get kind of nervous. And sometimes they maybe excommunicate you or kill you or torture you just to persuade you, you know, you're really not divine. <laughs> Take that. So that's happened many times. In, in Tibetan Buddhism, happily, they, they've struck this balance where there's so much emphasis on devotion. I mean, really, traditional Tibetans. So much devotion for Tara, Bodhisattva, Tsongkhapa, Padmasambhava, and so forth and so on, to the Lamas, for sure. Deep, deep devotion. At the same time, no school of Tibetan Buddhism has ever thought it's kind of heretical to recognize that, in fact, you have Buddha nature. The Mahamudra, Dzogchen, are completely legitimate. So that in short, that in short, it can be very helpful as an expedient means to externalize, to project from the depths of your own being the divine and enter into an I-thou relationship. It can be very useful, very beneficial and has an authenticity to it. It's not just a make-believe kind of just sheer fiction. But the culmination of that in, in Mayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism in particular, the culmination of that is where that whole embodiment, that synthesis, it's, it's said like the guru is the synthesis of all the Buddhas of all the three times. In classic guru yoga, the guru is not just one Buddha, the synthesis of all the Buddhas, right? A, a past, present, and future, all embodied here, right? And so prayers of supplication, offering, devotions, and so forth. And then at the culmination of it, what happens then? Then inviting to the crown of the head, and then this melting, blissful melting, the dissolution 
and then the, and then the embracing of a sense of total non-duality between your own identity, the identity of the guru, your own body, speech, and mind with the body, speech, and mind of the guru. And then from that platform, then you practice. Maybe you just rest in rikpa. Maybe you practice state regeneration and you are imagining yourself as a Buddha. But that is clearly the culmination. So that was a little bit of rambling. But I think it does contextualize the practice of Donglen in a very meaningful way. When we look at the verses, which again we'll do after meditation, coming shortly, if one really didn't have any understanding of the context at all, and one sees the next aphorism, and that is practice with words, with what kind of words? May all the suffering of others ripen upon me, and all my virtues and all my joys, all the goodness in my life, may I give this away. If one had no context for that at all, that could sound like, man, you must be deeply depressed. Incredibly so low self-esteem that you feel you don't deserve any happiness at all. You should just give everything away. And you're such an awful person that all the other people's suffering should ripen on you because you're just so despicable. You feel so bad about yourself that I probably deserve it. Like you're in an intensely codependent relationship with the entire world. And I'm using that word. as a strange word, but codependency. If a woman has a codependent relationship with an abusive husband, right? I think just... So maybe not everybody doesn't know what this means in English, although you may have a good understanding in your native language. But as I understand it, a code, and so here, here we have, an, again, an expert. There you are. Uh, there she is. Yeah. So, Marty, if I say something incorrect, pop your hand up. But a codependent relationship, like if it's, it's a woman having a codependent relationship with an abusive husband, she feels, but I'm unworthy. And if he abuses me or strikes me, beats me, treats me badly, I probably deserve it. And after all, I should really be taking care of him at all costs. So I'll give him everything, and I'll always be forgiving, and I'll always give him my stuff. And if he did, re responds with abuse and alcoholism and, and physical and so forth, well, I probably deserve it. So just take it on, because I probably deserve this. But here, let me give you this in return. Is that OK? Sounds, sounds really grotesque, and it is grotesque. It is, this is an incredibly unhealthy relationship. Get out now. Escape, escape, escape. You know, this is terrible. Because it's not, obviously not helping the woman, but it's also terrible for the man. It doesn't feel that bad, but it's terrible for the man. It's, in other words, an utterly destructive relationship. But it sounds like, on the surface, may all your suffering come to me. All your depression, all your anger, may it ripen upon me. And all the, all the good that I have, I, I can cook for you, I can make your bed, I can, I can help you, I have sex with you, and so forth. All that I can offer, may you have that. On the surface of it, the words can be almost identical, right? And they could not be more different. But then how? Well, taking upon ourselves the suffering and dissolving it into this transcendent dimension, and we're giving all that is good from the transcendent dimension. Right? And it's liberating, and it's joyful, like St. Francis of Assisi, going into abject poverty, and just constantly, that was he was known for, just joyful all the time, always grateful, always joyful. So profoundly different. The words on the surface, very similar to a terrible relationship, terrible attitude. But this has absolutely nothing to do with low self-esteem at all, but rather a dropping of the, sen the very sense of self down to the heart. So a little introduction, but now let's go to the practice, see what, that, see what that's like.
Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And for a little while, calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing. Now, in the midst of the mindfulness of breathing practice, let your awareness rest in its own place, unmoving, free of grasping, clear. Resting in the awareness of awareness while simultaneously being aware of the comings and goings of the breath. This utter sense of ease, of release, of letting go of your ordinary sense of your mind, releasing your mind, releasing the grasping onto or identification with your body. Just rest in awareness. beyond the persona that you identify with so frequently. And to the best of your ability, let the locus of your awareness, the place of your awareness, be released and descend to your heart Rest in your heart. Be aware from your heart.
Now let your imagination come into play. The crystallization, so to speak, of the luminosity of your awareness, taking on form. And imagine this deepest dimension of your own awareness, pristine awareness, taking on the form symbolically of a radiant, incandescent, white orb of light at your heart. Imagining this is an inexhaustible source of light, of utter primordial purity, of immutable bliss, and the wellspring of all virtue. Rest there, simply being aware of the sheer luminosity of your own awareness manifesting symbolically as this orb of light. And now from this vantage point, let's enter into the practice of Donglen with respect to ourselves. Bring to mind now the sufferings you bear, that which challenges you, brings you distress, anxiety, sadness. In your life nowadays, what troubles you? Whether it's physical distress, interpersonal, psychological. Bring to mind the suffering that you bear. Bring to mind also the mental afflictions that are implicated in that suffering. 
that perpetuate that suffering. Symbolically imagine this burden of suffering and its underlying causes. It's like a shroud of darkness. Enveloping you. It's the burden you bear, being a sentient being. And then with each in-breath, arousing compassion or the yearning to be free for yourself, free of suffering and its causes, with each in-breath arouses aspiration for freedom. With each in-breath, imagine this shroud of darkness being drawn into your heart, into, into this inexhaustible light at your heart, and being consumed there without trace. Breath by breath, imagine this darkness dissipating, being drawn into and extinguished in the light at your heart. Breath by breath, imagine becoming free here and now from all that ails you, all that afflicts you. use words. May I be free of physical suffering. May I be free of mental suffering. May I be free of craving and attachment. Free of anger and hatred. of ignorance and delusion. And imagine it to be so.
Imagine all the darkness gone and imagine being free of suffering and its causes. And with each out-breath, arouse the aspiration of loving-kindness. Aspiration may I be happy, truly happy, and cultivate the causes of such well-being. May I be well and happy, in body and in mind. And with each out-breath from this inexhaustible source of purity, of light, loving kindness, imagine rays of light flowing forth and entirely filling your body, your mind, your entire being. Imagine saturating your whole being with the bliss of your own pristine awareness, fulfilling your innermost desire. May I be filled with the light of compassion of all the Buddhas with each outbreath. May I be filled with the light of the wisdom of all the Buddhas 
with each out-breath. May I be filled with the power and energy, the light of the power and energy of all the Buddhas with each out-breath. Imagine this light filling you to total saturation. And then with every outbreath, imagine this refracted light into the five colors, white, yellow, red, blue, and green, flowing out in all directions around you, above and below and to all the sides a sphere of light, multicolored light. And embracing everyone in your immediate environment, whether here in Phuket or wherever you are at home, with every out-breath arousing yearning, may you find genuine happiness and its causes. May you be truly happy. With every outbreath, expand. Continue to expand this sphere of light in all directions. With every outbreath, simply arousing this yearning, may we all be truly well and happy and imagine it to be so.
Let this light-filled space of your awareness expand in all directions without limit, with no borders. May we all be well and happy. Releasing your mind into the space of loving-kindness, luminous, vast, without an object. Then release all appearances and all aspirations, and for just a little while, let your awareness rest with no object, resting in its own natural luminosity. So now we do return to the text. The commentary here has also been front-loaded, so maybe I don't need as many words now. The next aphorism, this again is for post-meditative practice, overall in the context of the cultivation of relative bodhicitta. We have the formal meditation, and now as we're simply engaging with the world, he says, during all, activity, all activities, train with phrases, or, or train with words, either one is fine. I mentioned this before, and then some, what are some of the phrases, really, because it's, it's well, phrases or words, either one. But one, for example, may, all the, may, may the suffering and its causes of all sentient beings ripen upon me. May the causes of my well-being ripen upon all sentient beings. 
Okay, so I've discussed the context for that already, so now I don't need many words. This is a good time, though, to raise this issue of two approaches to manifesting, cultivating, unveiling these very deep impulses within our consciousness of loving kindness and compassion. And so one can say, on the one hand, by sincerely arousing these, these yearnings, may the suffering and the cause of all sentient beings ripen upon me in a spirit of compassion, then this may arouse deeper and deeper empathy, deeper and deeper sense of caring, as a mother may just spontaneously feel that and, and have for who knows how many generations. But how many times has a mother looked upon her own child in suffering and with no training, no coaching, no special meditative practice, spontaneously wished, oh, if only the suffering of my child, if only I could take that on and the child could be free. I would take it on so happily. Isn't it true? I'm not a mother, but isn't it true? This is not kind of some dreamy, airy-fairy kind of stuff, but I think it's happened countless times, right? And it's just spontaneous, but it's so genuine that, oh, if the child could be relieved, I'd so happily take that suffering upon myself, and then I could look upon my child and see that the child is free of suffering and be so happy, even while I'm experiencing that suffering myself. It's true, isn't it? Okay, I'm looking at some mothers here. It's true. It's amazing. But there it is. You're not just suffering. You're not like... The child no longer suffering, now I'm suffering. Oh, oh, this feels awful, it feels awful. Not that way, right? If you're aware that the child is actually free, you may actually experience the suffering, but above that, holding that, it's the joy, I'm so happy. It came true, hallelujah. My child is actually free, and it's just me getting the suffering instead. So there it is, from two perspectives. The child might look at you and say, oh, my mama, now you're suffering. Yeah, and you smile and you laugh in response. Isn't it wonderful? That's mothers. You don't have to be the son of God for that. It's quite amazing. Well, that's what he's saying. Instead of this focus upon one's own child, but not other people's children, not the next-door neighbor, and not that grumpy old man that lives down the street. Yeah, you know. Instead of having all the barriers, my child, not my child, my family, not my child, my, my neighborhood, not my neighborhood, this this extraordinary, almost inconceivable love that mothers have for their children comes spontaneously, and it does have a biological influence. There's no question about that. And as the Dalai Lama commented many times, this can come simply by the fact that you're a very loving mother with no particular training. But to extend that so the barriers break down, my child, not my child, and so forth, all the barriers break down, my loved ones, neutral people, people, who don't care for me, and maybe I've had difficulty with them too, maybe some dislike and aversion, all those barriers, that that doesn't come naturally. That's not a biological imperative. That we have not mutated and genetically adapted to as in changing environment, that you know, just by the world changing, somehow we're developing unconditional love where all the barriers are broken down. That doesn't just happen to you just by you know, genetics. It's another kind of evolution. It's deliberate, it's conscious, and it has to be very wise. It's called dharma. That's the other type of evolution, where we go beyond that which may be parental love. Fathers also occasionally, on occasion, experience that same type of utter commitment, utter dedication, willing to take on any suffering for their family, and do. And that's also happened. It's not only gender-specific, but then not for other people's family. 
Or they may take that on for one side and then go off to war and be very happy to kill the parents of other children and feel quite proud of it. Oh, I, such a warrior, such a, such a he-man am I. That doesn't come biologically. That comes spiritually through conscious evolution, through the practice of Dharma, breaking down all the barriers. So on the one hand, this is cultivated, cultivated. And by arousing the thought and actually meaning it, may the suffering of others ripen upon me, may my joys, my virtues ripen upon others, then this is what this is doing is it's counteracting a deeply ingrained habit of when we see something, some disaster, some financial disaster or natural calamity, oh, me first. We find this also coming up. People scrambling away, scrambling away from maybe, you know, maybe there's been a bomb. And then people trampling each other. Even in football games, people trampling each other, stepping on each other, trampling. Above all, may the suffering not ripen upon me, but upon everybody else. Me first. I'm getting out of here. This is a disaster. The house is on fire. Look out. I'm coming through. I'm coming through. May all the suffering ripen on other people, but not me, right? Or if there's a lottery, <laughs> may all the lottery ripen upon me. You know? There's a natural tendency. It's called self-centeredness. May none of the suffering come my way and all the good stuff come my way. That's called self-centeredness. Right? And so these, these words, bringing into mind, doing the best that we can to sincerely feel them from the heart, it's just a head-on collision with self-centeredness. May all the bad stuff go to other people and all the good stuff come to me. That's self-centeredness in a nutshell. So if you want to increase self-centeredness, those would be the phrases. May all the suffering ripen on other people and all the good stuff ripen to me. Okay, that'll, that'll reinforce, that'll give you a long-standing home in samsara. But by, re, by reciting, bringing to mind and sincerely arousing the yearning, may the suffering ripen upon me, the, my virtues ripen upon others, then that breaks down the habituation of self-centeredness through this developmental model. At the same time, it's come up at least in one conversation in the one-on-one -on -one meetings here. Are people just going, and it's happened, this is not the first time. We've had seven of these retreats, and of course it happens in so many innumerable cases outside of these little retreats, where people simply go deep inside into a very deep stillness, where there's a clarity, a release of grasping, a release, a release, just going deeper and deeper into the own awareness. And then find discovering and not developing. Discovering often to one's amazement an outflowing of loving kindness, an outflowing compassion. And you look at that and say, I didn't do that. I didn't cultivate that. I didn't strive and strive and strive and then saying, look what I did. I cultivated like you know, having baked a cake. Look at the cake that I baked. It took a long time to bake, but look, isn't it yummy? Not like that at all. This is like a cake dropping from heaven. This is like grace. So if you want to put it in a theistic context, you're welcome to do that. Or put it in a Buddhist context. These are rays of light flowing right up from your Buddha nature. And they're simply no longer being obscured by all the noise, the junk, the rumination, the obsessive, compulsive, self-centered thinking driven by craving, hostility, and delusion that normally obscures that natural purity of our own awareness. Right? So these qualities, loving kindness, compassion, and finally bodhicitta itself, there are these two utterly worthy, authentic approaches. And I want to emphasize both, both, both have meaning, value, and they've proven that. This is not an article of faith. It's proven that for centuries upon centuries. A people developing bodhicitta, coming back 
actively viewing all sentient beings as their mothers, their fathers, their beloved family, actively developing, reflecting upon the kindness of others, actively arousing the yearning to repay the kindness of others, developing the four immeasurable, great compassion, and so forth and so forth, developing, developing, and out of that, then just you know, truly realizing incredible bodhicitta. I mean, one of these was Kunalama Rinpoche. I never met him. Do you ever meet him? But we, we all we know him by this. Oh, I mean, his holiness has received the Bodhicharvatara from who knows how many teachers, certainly from his tutors and so forth. He teaches that text probably more than any other text, I imagine. But of all the teachers received it from, he says his lineage, he says, my lineage that I'm passing on to you is from Kuno Lama Rinpoche, this one lama, this one monk, from Kuno, Kuno Malali, northern India. But this man just embodied compassion. He just embodied bodhicitta. And he sang bodhicitta. He wrote verses and praise of bodhicitta. It was just like this is all that his life was all about. He taught it. He wrote it. He sang it. He lived it. He enacted it. It was just bodhicitta. You know. That was it. And so his holiness sought him out for the transmission of a guide to the bodhisattva world. You know. So, and quite clearly, I mean, judging by the kind of writing and the meditations that he describes, it's just cultivating that as a whole way of life. And then seeing, oh, that really works. There it is, total manifestation. You brought it forth, and there it is. So much that you become a guru of the Dalai Lama. For Bodhicitta, can you imagine? His only Dalai Lama being regarded you know, by, by, by the devoted Tibetan Buddhists as Chenrezig Avalokiteshvara, compassion embodied, coming to this Lama saying, please give me teachings on Bodhicitta. Amazing. I wish I could have met him. But there it is. So there's through development. And so does that work? Well, yeah. His holiness sought him out as his guru for bodhicitta. And on the other hand, we have these great beings, these, such as, only as an example, such Dzogchen masters, you know, where they may not write so much about the development of bodhicitta. Certainly referred to it. They never exclude it. But where they're going is that, again, that that straight track, right to realizing ultimate bodhicitta, pristine awareness. And then, then like Padmasambhava, by way of Dujun Limba, saying, once you've tapped into that, then relative bodhicitta comes forth spontaneously. You would never dream of going into some kind of dualistic thinking of, oh, may your suffering ripen upon me in this dualistic mode. May my, my joys ripen upon you in a dualistic mode. I said, oh, no, you're way beyond that. Dualism. Conceptual frameworks, striving, developing, cultivating. This is coming out like a geyser right out of your Buddha nature with no mediation, just boom, spontaneous, uncontrived, absolutely authentic, relative bodhicitta. So there's a developmental model, there's a discovery model, and they're both just profoundly compatible and complementary to each other. So for this during all activities, train with phrases, then the, the council here, the traditional commentary, say practice, cult, continue cultivating this tonglen until you obtain signs of success. As in the case of Maitri Yogan, very, very, very famous story, Maitri Yogan. Okay? Until, until you have some real tangible evidence, well, this is really working. And so here's the story of Maitri Yogan, one of the great Indian <coughs> adepts. And the story, it's a very short story. It says, when Maitri Yogan was teaching, teaching Dharma, of course, a, bar a dog barked at someone who, losing his temper, threw a stone at it. 
Maitreyogin witnessing of this, of course. The, the dog was hit in the ribs, and hit in the ribs, so good marksmanship, bam, got the dog, and the dog yelped in pain, yowled in pain. Feeling great sorrow for the animal, the teacher, Maitreyogin, cried out, like cried out in pain, and fell down from the throne. He was up on a Dharma throne, like this is my Dharma throne, by the way. He fell down from his throne. He cried and then fell off the throne. This is taking things a bit too far, thought his disciples. Like, isn't that a bit of a melodrama there? Like, come on, get a grip. Fell off his throne because somebody hit a dog. Knowing what was in their minds, Maitreyokin said, look here at my ribs. And on his body, exactly where the stone had hit the dog, he had a bruise. And the dog was healed. He had actually taken the suffering of the animal upon himself. So, so you can come back to Jesus on the cross. You can come back to St. Francis of Assisi with a stigmata. It's a historical fact. I mean, the stigmata, it's happened many times, but that's a very, very well-known account of him. He took it very nonchalantly. He didn't make a big deal out of it at all. He said, oh, it happened, so what can you do? So until you can actually take the suffering of others upon yourself, then continue practicing. There's still room for progress. We'll do just a little bit more, and then we have some questions. Begin, and now, because we've already covered this, we're almost finished. And then we'll move on to the next major point. Begin the sequence of sending and taking with yourself. So that's just we did, what we did in the, in the last practice. Begin the practice of sending and taking by focusing on yourself. So here's this classic sequence from the loving-kindness practice taught by Buddha Gosa, right? But now in the context of Tonglen. Begin the practice of sending and taking by focusing on yourself, then focusing on a friend in trouble and need. And then just keep on expanding or moving out in these concentric circles and eventually extend this loving-kindness and compassion to all beings, both near and far. Until it's unconditional, without barrier, without boundary. So, so summing up then, in the Mayana view, all suffering, and most explicitly, most obviously, all mental suffering. It's true for physical suffering as well, but not quite so obvious, because this carries from lifetime to lifetime and so forth. But all mental suffering, more explicitly, easier to fathom, all mental suffering stems from two sources. One is cognitive, and the other is more, one's more from the mind, one's from the heart. We do the old cliche, the head and the, the, head and the heart. And that is cognitively, all suffering stems from ignorance and then the reification, the grasping onto inherent existence. It sounds quite metaphysical, perhaps, kind of a bit vague, a bit philosophical, a bit you know, abstract, but boy, in practice, it's not. And again, just let's just take the analogy. Take the analogy of a dream. Why do we, again, it's, it's, it seems like a silly question, but why should we ever suffer in our own dreams? Are our, our own creation, are they, are, they are our own creation, after all. Nobody's doing it to any of us. Nobody gets punished in their dreams by some dream god. You know, it's a free, free, free creation. And moreover, nothing there in the dream has any real inherent existence of its own. They're literally, obviously, from the waking perspective, empty appearances 
that have no capacity whatsoever to inflict any harm on anybody. Like showing you a slideshow, you know, or showing you a movie, or showing you rainbows in the sky, or a mirage, or reflections in a mirror. So look at the reflections in the mirror. What capacity do the reflections in the mirror have to harm anybody? They're not even there, right? They appear to be there as you're standing five feet in front of a mirror and you see your reflection five feet behind the mirror, right? Standard, good old-fashioned mirror reflection. So you go, you make faces at it, and you see there's the faces. And so you see the image right there, 10 feet away from you, five feet behind the mirror, and five feet behind the mirror, there's nothing whatsoever there. The reflection is there in the sense you can focus your camera lens on it. It comes into focus at 10 feet. So the camera tells you it's there. I'll take now a photo of it, and you can. You can take a photo of the reflection, your reflection in the mirror, and according to the camera lens, that reflection, the image, the appearance, is 10 feet, five feet behind the mirror, right, as you stand five feet in front of the mirror. So, and moreover, it has causal efficacy, doesn't it? I mean, you, you, take, the, you take, take, the, take the photo, and you say, oh, yeah, there's a good photo of, of the reflection of myself in the mirror. In other words, there's causal efficacy there. But there's nothing there. Isn't it kind of strange that you're actually taking a photo of something that isn't there at all, but still has causal efficacy? Because there is nothing there. Five me I mean, anybody will tell you. It could be mud. It could be a mud wall. It could be concrete. It could be empty space. It could be any. It doesn't matter what's there. What's absolutely not there is that reflection. But you can take a photo of it, and there it is. I got a photo of it. It must be real. Look. Because there it is. Empty and yet has causal efficacy. How utterly bizarre. Not there at all, and yet has causal efficacy. You can look into the mirror and really feel happy. Oh, I look so attractive. Or really unhappy. Oh, not. Or all kinds of things. The image will trigger, can trigger, causally influence. All kinds of responses, right? One practice that Padmasambhava teaches in natural liberation is coming to a mirror. <laughs> it comes in the preliminary practices of natural liberation. Coming to a mirror, looking at yourself very clearly, and then just abusing yourself. I don't think I need a mimic, but you, you idiot. You can just continue, but be really intense about it. You know, if you like to use profanity, and just lay it on. I won't use any, but lay it on me. Really just like decimate the person there. You, wah, wah, wah. And see if that has any influence as you're abusing someone who doesn't exist. And then turn the same thing around and praise yourself, eulogize yourself, flatter yourself, lay it on. You know, and see if that has any influence. As you're praising and abusing an appearance that certainly looks an awful lot like you. In fact, if they took a photo of your face and took a photo of that reflection, they're pretty much the same. And see if there's any response as you're looking there into the mirror and abusing yourself and then praising yourself. Anything come up? Anything come up? It's quite interesting. So, so all mental suffering most explicitly arises from this grasping onto things as being really there. In a dream, why do we suffer mentally at all? Because we're grasping onto these things that aren't there at all as being really there and then responding to him as such, and then suffering arises. And none of it was necessary 
all of it from an outside perspective is almost like a joke. Like you were suffering because of an alligator that wasn't there and was chasing you or somebody, you know, somebody abused you, somebody blah, blah, blah. And from the waking perspective, it's like, whoa, that's really kind of funny. I mean, weird that you would suffer from nothing. But when you're in a non-lucid dream, that's as real as it gets. Right? There's nothing more real for you. In a non-lucid dream, there's nothing more real for you at that time than whatever's happening in the dream, including your own presence in the dream. Right? So that's one reason. So as in the dream, then so in the waking state. We reify everything, and then we're, we're vulnerable to everything. So there's one major cause for suffering. And what's the antidote? Ultimate bodhicitta. That's where he started, right after preliminary practices and achieve shamatha, stabilize your mind as well as you can, goes directly to ultimate bodhicitta. That's kind of a, like a left hook to the cause of root, fundamental cause of suffering, right? It's called self-grasping, reification of self, but reification of all phenomena. And then the other one, more on a pragmatic level, is this self, it's often translated literally, but misleadingly as self-cherishing, and not quite as literally, but more accurately, as self-centeredness. Right? That's the other one. And it's not simply attachment. It's not simply attachment. It's something actually deeper than that. One may aspire for liberation for oneself, recognizing with some real insight that one's craving, one's hostility, and one's delusion are really at the root of one's suffering. One may recognize it. See, oh, I can see it now. Not other people outside, it's outside. It's this. If I can overcome, free my mind of craving, hostility, and delusion, then I really actually will be free of suffering. And that delusion includes grasping onto I, me, mine with respect to my body, my body, my mind, my possessions, and so forth. And so one sees, oh, I've got the, I've got the agenda, I've got the strategy now. I now I want to suffer, I want to stop suffering, not only in this lifetime, but I want to stop suffering forever, be totally free which is what I've always wanted, but now I, finally find, I have finally found an effective strategy for doing that. I have to apply everything needed, like maybe ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, to radically overcome and absolutely eradicate from my mind stream every vestige, every seed, every impulse of craving, hostility, and delusion. And if I, free, if I am free in that way, if I so heal my mind irreversibly and fundamentally from those mental afflictions, then I can be free. I can slip into nirvana and I'll never have to come back because there will be no karma, no mental afflictions that thrust me back, propels me back into unwanted births and just more perpetuation of samsara. I'll be forever free, immutable, transcendent, blissful, and never have to come back. I'll be gone and never have to suffer again. That could be a motivation for practice. And it has been many, many times. It's called renunciation. It's authentic. But it's limited. Because I never mention anybody besides myself. Not my mother, not my father. Nobody else. It was, here's my agenda for my own individual liberation. May I be free. And I don't want to hurt anybody on the way, but may I be free. And there were cases, when I first read this, I was quite startled and actually a bit troubled. There were cases at the time of the Buddha, in the Pali Canon, clearly recorded, 
you can read it in an excellent biography of the Buddha called The Life of the Buddha by Nyanamoli Bhikkhu. He's the same one who translated The Path of Purification that I cited, I think, yesterday or recently. Outstanding scholar. He put together superb scholarship, A Life of the Buddha, in which he cites the Pali Canon commentaries and sub-commentaries. And one of the things he cited in this excellent biography was individuals who became arhats. So wonderful. Completely free, completely free of all mental afflictions and the seeds of mental affliction. And having become liberated, arhats, they recognize the obvious, and that is, although their minds were not completely free, there's no mental distress at all, no mental suffering whatsoever. They still had the remainder of karma and klesha from past lives manifesting as their current body. This was the last baggage that was propelled from past lives when they were not in life, not free, not, had not achieved nirvana. And this was the last bit of baggage left over, this body-mind system driven and created by karma and klesha. And they looked at it, it's like, what am I carrying this load of crap for? This is the last thing that's holding me down. And they would use the knife and kill themselves to cut the cord of that last little lingering tip of samsara. They killed themselves. And then they would be achieve arhatship without remainder. I was quite startled by that. They didn't harm anybody. They just, you know, snuffed out a body that they had no attachment to whatsoever. They no longer identified with at all. And they just, I don't need this. This is the last thing that's holding me in samsara. So whatever, but they would just you know, do away with it. And then they would die, and then they would achieve arhatship, nirvana, without remainder. But I was quite startled by this. Like, didn't you want to help anybody? You've achieved freedom. Wouldn't you like to share? Nothing to offer to anybody else? Such an individual is free of craving, hostility, and delusion. It's an arhat. This is from the Pali Canon. I'm making, this is not an interpretation. It's straight from the teaching, the Pali Canon. The person is free. It's an arhat, free of craving, hostility, and delusion. Is that person free from self-centeredness? I don't think so. Otherwise, well, for heaven's sakes, use the remaining years of your life. Use your purity. Go out and help people, for heaven's sakes. You found the path to liberation. Help other people. And for some, it didn't occur to them. And for some, it did. Some were very compassionate. These arhats, some incredibly compassionate, boundlessly compassionate. But others, not so much. You know? So there it is, lingering self-centeredness, even in the absence of craving hostility and delusion. Still self-centeredness. Right? So this, I think, is really the core critique, the Mahayana critique, uh, the limitations. The limitations, that's the best word, the limitations of this pursuit of one's own individual liberation. There's nothing bad about it, nothing wrong with it. It's just limited. There's an ignorance there, a not attending to, an unawareness of, are you aware that you're surrounded by all sentient beings who have been your mothers, and they're still in samsara? Are you aware of that? Do you care? Are you attending to that? Does this matter to you? Are you factoring this into your motivation? And the Mayana response is, if not, then you're still holding a root of suffering. And even if you slip into, now money out of perspective, even if you slip into nirvana, there's still work to be done. 
You're free of craving, hostility, and delusion, but you're not free of self-centeredness. Therefore, enjoy nirvana for a while, but you're coming back. There's more work to be done. You have not completely unveiled your Buddha nature. In Mayana, classic Mayana teachings, there's only one ultimate destination. There's only one ultimate destination. Perfect enlightenment. You can't stay forever at anything lower. So on the microcosm level, you achieve shamatha, you feel, oh, this is it, this is what I always wanted, I want to stay here forever. Well, you can't. One way or another, it's going to wear off. You'll, you lose your shamatha. If you don't you do something with it to go further, if you just try to stay there and say, I'm a happy camper, I've achieved shamatha, then you can stay there for a while, but then it will erode, and you'll be back in samsara again. It's different. It's not the same for a person who becomes an arhat. Not the same because the level of purity, purification is much, much deeper. One isn't propelled back into samsara by karma and klesha, because you really are free of that. You're getting a big dose of Buddhism here. But this is a Buddhist text, so why not? The arhat who passes into nirvana without remainder, in the, Buddha, in the Mayana view, not the Theravada view at all, so there's a clear difference, Mayana view, that arhat sooner or later does come back. But comes back symbolically, I think it's beautiful imagery, and that's all I can say is imagery, is a ray of light from the Buddha's heart strikes the, the mind of the arhat who's passed into nirvana without remainder. Stri a ray of light strikes the arhat with a message, there's yet more to be done. Come back. Not by karma and klesha. Comes back. Because there's an awareness, there's something more to be done. You've not completely unveiled your Buddha nature. You've not, you're not home yet. You've slipped into nirvana, but not the ground of samsara and nirvana. So one root of suffering is grasping this reification. The other one is self-centeredness. So for the reification, the grasping under the dream as being inherently existent, we have ultimate bodhicitta. For overcoming self-centeredness. So this is radical, one of the greatest revolutions a person can possibly go through. As Shantideva spells out so clearly in the eighth chapter of the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, of feeling, first of all, the sense of equality, the this, this sense of evenly caring about one's own and others' well-being. And that means everybody else. Right? But as the Solon has commented in, in the first teachings that I ever translated for him, the first teachings he gave in the West, in Switzerland in 1979, he said in this regard, he was teaching this, the uh, eight verses of training mind, eight verses of training mind by Langley Tampa. And he's saying if you, if you really develop this sense of equality that your well-being is, is simply of equal importance to mine, but, and so is so Jude and same. I mean, my well-being is no more important than yours, but it's the same. And then Carmen's is well, it's the same. I mean, your well-being, mine, your suffering, mine, there's just no difference. They're exactly the same importance. And Gonzalo and for Paolo and for Rob, everybody here, it's exactly the same. But now it's all in. He said, imagine there's a thousand people there and you're, you're here. Now take those thousand people collectively, their well-being and your well-being. Now which is more important? Well, that's easy. Everybody can do the math. And that's what Shantideva is getting at. First of all, the sense of equality and then this radical shift. Once again, this 180-degree shift. That the well-being of other sentient beings is immeasurably important than one's own. As the number of sentient beings far exceeds the number of one. But then, of course, it's just sheer math. But of course, then everybody else's well-being is infinitely more important than my own. So then, therefore, any sacrifice is worthy. 
If I can take upon myself the suffering of all beings, they can be free. Well, that's a wonderful thing. Especially if you can view that from the perspective of being awake. So, cultivation of ultimate bodhicitta counteracts the reification, the grasping, grasping onto true existence of oneself and all phenomena. Cultivation of relative bodhicitta counteracts the self-centeredness. So, in the seven-point mind training, he really starts out with a bang the two great antidotes to the two great causes of suffering. And then he follows up, so we finish those two. That's it. And then the rest is all about transmuting everything that life dishes up. Everything, adversity, felicity, everything. And being this kind of a spiritual alchemist and transmuting everything so that it's transformed into spiritual practice, into spiritual maturation. And so that you are spiritually evolving, not only while you're on the cushion in a very idyllic setting, where people are serving us hand and foot, cleaning our rooms, changing our laundry, feeding us, cleaning the dishes for us, cleaning the grounds and smiling whenever they see us as if we're family and friends. I'm not the only one, am I? <laughs> Maybe it's just they like me. But are they smiling at you too? Oh, I guess I'm not so special then. Okay. But there we are. It doesn't get much nicer than this. But then when it gets not so as nice as this, how can we trans transform that as well? So that's what the rest of the text is kind of about. So let's see if there's a quick question here that can be responded. This looks like, is this, I think, is this Bayate again? It looks like your handwriting. I think we need to give somebody else a little bit of time. Can you please spell the two Tibetan words you use when practicing merging mind with space? Uh, sure. Sem namga namga dan depa. Sem mind namka space. Nang here means with, and depa um, in Wiley trans transliteration apostrophe d r e s p a. Yeah, there we go. So that was kind of technical. I hope that everybody got a lot of benefit from it. And what does each word mean? Well, that's what it means. Is it okay to use the translated version in your own language uh, as you do the practice? Sure, whatever touches your heart. Um, whatever really speaks to you. So, but that's, that's what it is. It's very literal, very kind of elementary Buddhist translation. Your, your, your sem, your mind, you're merging with space. So that's what we're doing. If you, and so that's it. So I covered the process. Uh, you, Alan, covered the process or procedure for individual supreme, middle, middling, and inferior faculties to follow. You didn't mention the remedial retarded category. Some of us would like to know. So for the people who have kind of makeup work to do. <coughs> Well, what, it's, no, it's a good question, because I'm, of course, I'm, I'm uh, the embodiment of a remedial person teaching a remedial class. So for the inferior, just to cover that briefly, and we'll have, we'll have dinner. Uh, for the people of inferior faculties, he actually elaborates on this, on this point in the Vajra Essence, when he goes seven days for space, and then seven days for a stick stone, etc., and then seven days for this five-colored orb of light at the heart. He said, now some people, if you have strong mental afflictions, if you're strong wind disposition, vata, kind of high-strung, intense, you know, like that kind of person, uh, or you're living in a really degenerate era where just mental afflictions are kind of almost in the air, he said, if you do this a lot, I think he's especially referring to this very intense visualization at the heart. He said, oh, you may come, become catatonic. You may, have, you, know, you may have some really severe psychological problems arising from that. Right? In which case, then back off. Don't push, don't push. Very easy to do. 
Don't push. Loosen up and go to just whatever thought comes up, just observe it. In other words, settling the mind. He calls it taking the mind as a path. He calls it taking appearances and awareness as a path. It's called settling the mind in its natural state. He goes for that one. So that's for people of inferior faculties. And since he spends about 25 pages on that one, I think also in Tibet 150 years ago, they're probably proportionately, probably the pyramid is most people are there in the lower part of the pyramid is inferior. And then much smaller number is medium. And then the tip of the pyramid, those people of superior faculties. But they did exist. I mean, people like Dujun Lingma himself, who never even had a human teacher, just had Padmasambhava, Mandarava, Yeshe Sogyal, and so forth as his visionary teachers, as well as a number of the great Mahasiddhas of India, Nagarjuna. So those are the people of superior faculties. So, but then in the sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, this is the most concise one. This, the Tantra, this is the most brief of all of the mind treasures of Dujim Lingba on Dzogchen. This one's 10 pages long. Okay? So I've translated it, translated a wonderful, wonderful 100-page commentary that's entirely, it's actually his commentary. It was based on his oral teachings on his own Tantra that he revealed. He was the Gnostic revealer of this 10-page Tantra that summarizes the entire path to enlightenment, Dzogchen. So he revealed it, but then as Jujum Lingba, the great Lama, then he gave a commentary to the Dharma that he'd revealed from his own mind stream. And then one of his students, Bematashi, one of his closest students, then took notes, took notes, and then formalized that into a commentary. And he said, just in order not to forget the Guru's teachings, I wrote this down. So he's often attributed as the author of the commentary. But it's in fact Jujum Lingba's own commentary to his own tre treasure. So there it is. But the, the, the 10 page, incredibly concise uh, account of the entire path to enlightenment and rainbow body in 10 pages, the sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, Shirik Doji Nyumbugyu. He gives the teachings, same teachings, but now incredibly condensed, to taking the mind as a path. right? But then he says at the end of that, after he's really dealt with it in the commentary, very clear, very, very clear. Then he says at the end of all that, and what to do also when upheavals come, you know, eruptions come, outer, inner, and secret eruptions come. And how to deal with those? Basically, insight and emptiness would be the, what the doctor ordered. Then he said, I can't, I can't quote it, but he said, then for people who are still having problems, then let your mind mount your breath like a rider upon a steed, like a, horse, like a horseman riding a horse, and let your mind ride on the horse of your which is prana, prana, and that one. That will move you forward. So it comes back to mindfulness of breathing. So for remedial folks, back to mindfulness of breathing, right? In and out, easy does it. So sweet, so gentle, very gentle. It's six o'clock, dinner time. See you tomorrow morning.